G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interact with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Sam Riley, and he's a marine biologist, underwater photographer, and expedition guide. And we're going to be talking all about leatherback sea turtles. And Sam actually spent a fairly large amount of time working with them in Africa. So we're going to hear a little bit about that. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. Appreciate it. How did you get involved with leatherbacks? So uh, the research that I was doing with leatherbacks was in Equatorial Guinea, which is a country in West Africa that's kind of nestled. It's a tiny country one of the smallest in Africa, actually, and it's nestled in between Cameroon and Gabon. And I was actually on an island called Bioko that was just offshore of Cameroon, actually, but it's territory of Equatorial Guinea, and it's where the biggest city in Equatorial Guinea is. But it's an amazing island that I'll go into uh, some of the reasons that it's so cool later, but it has very healthy populations of several species of sea turtle. I was doing research on them for for five months during the nesting season there. And I mean, out of all like marine biology research, is that one of the coolest research things you can do? Like turtle research on an island in Africa? Yeah, it it was pretty unreal experience living on Bioko Island. It's really kind of a crazy place in a lot of ways. The island is about 70 kilometers long and uh, has about 150 kilometers of coastline. And about 34 kilometers of that is suitable habitat, nesting habitat for sea turtles. And a smaller portion of that is for leatherback sea turtles. And where we actually were was in the southern side of the island, which is all national park. And basically the whole southern third of the island is pretty much uninhabitable except for There's one tiny village at the bottom of about 50 or 60 people, which are a group of booby people, which is the native race down there, of which turtles are actually an important aspect of their culture. And yeah, so we're situated on those southern beaches at a field camp 10 kilometers from the nearest road. And we were camped out on the beaches on this little bluff was really an amazing experience. And then just spending the nights out searching for turtles was just so cool. Cool. So searching for like mainly leatherback sea turtles, I presume, and tell us what they are exactly. What's a leatherback sea turtle? Leatherbacks are a really, really unique animal. Not only are they unique in the sea turtle world, they're actually very different than than most other sea turtles. And in fact, they're in their own family, but they're also very unique in pretty much in the reptile world. So the first thing that you're going to notice about a leatherback sea turtle when you see one is their size. They're absolutely enormous. The carapace, which is the shell, is about 1.8 meters in length, which is about six feet long. So huge itself. And then you add the massive head and the tail onto that, and they can reach about 2.2 to 2.5 meters. And then on top of that, they can have a wingspan. So they have really long flippers in the front. 
and the wingspan can be about 2.75 meters or nine feet in length. So these are absolutely massive turtles. They can weigh up to 930 kilograms or 2,000 pounds, which is about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle car. So, so really massive. And to put that in perspective as well, if you've ever been diving on the Great Barrier Reef or in the tropics somewhere and you've seen a sea turtle and you've thought, wow, that thing is massive. These guys are double the length of the next biggest sea turtle and three to four times the weight of the next biggest sea turtle which is a loggerhead actually, which is also kind of unusual to see. So if you've seen a sea turtle out diving and you thought it looked really big, you haven't seen anything because these guys are, are absolutely massive. <laughs> so that, that's yeah. one thing. And then if you look at the shape of them as well, they're, they're quite different than other turtles. The carapace is actually more of a teardrop or torpedo shape. It starts really broad in the front and narrows towards the back. They actually remind me sort of, of bodybuilders in a way they have these massive broad shoulders that are super muscular and you know huge four flippers and then they've got like a massive chunky head and neck and then it all tapers down into like super narrow hips they're almost like chicken legged with these tiny little legs in the back so um it's <laughs> a so very bodybuilder like yeah bodybuilders of the sea turtle world i love it <laughs> yeah yeah Absolutely. And then there's a few other things that make them really unique. So they don't have a hard bony shell with scoots or plates on it like other sea turtles do. Instead, it's more of a leathery kind of rubbery tough skin that is actually infused with thousands of embedded tiny little bone plates for structure and strength. Yeah, so they don't actually have scales um, or scoots, and it's not bony. It's actually soft and quite flexible, which is pretty unusual. And they have seven ridges that are raised that move lengthwise down the back, which make them more hydrodynamic and gives them a pretty sleek, cool look. The coloration is sort of an inky blue, sometimes almost black, they're very dark in color, but they're freckled with white spots all over the head and neck and especially around the limbs as well. And then when you see them in pictures, you often will see the, the skin will have kind of reddish or pinkish coloring because usually photographs are taken on the beaches. And that's actually their skin flushing as they're trying to get rid of excess body heat because they actually overheat a lot during the nesting period when they're crawling up onto the beaches, trying to drag their 2000 pound bodies <laughs> around. So it's like they're blushing, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to get rid of the heat. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you can see that because it's so significant. Yeah. And with the head, I just want to set the scene. Cause like in my mind, when I first saw a leatherback turtle, I was quite surprised. Cause you know, I'm used to seeing your hawk's bill who have this like real sharp beak, but then a leatherback, it's quite a different looking face. Some people might say it's ugly. I would say it's beautiful, but it's definitely different to a normal turtle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's very different. Their jaws are designed differently because they actually eat a different, they have a different food source. So most sea turtles are eating hard bodied organisms and they have these sort of crushing jaws that, that assist in that. These guys actually feed only on, on jellyfish. So they really don't need strong jaws at all. They have more scissor-like jaws that kind of cut into the jellyfish. And then they have these backwards facing spines actually called papillae inside the mouth and throat, which actually help guide it back down. 
But yeah, so they actually have quite weak jaws and they look very, yeah, very different than, than other sea turtles. And another thing that people often point out when they see leatherbacks on the beach regarding their head is that it often looks like they're crying when they're up on the beaches. And the reason for that is they actually have enormous salt glands because eating jellyfish, they're just swimming around with their mouth open a lot and taking in a lot of salt water. So like most marine vertebrates that aren't fish, they need a way of getting rid of that excess salt. So when they're out on land, they're actually just exuding this kind of mucusy slime that comes out from the eyes. <laughs> it comes out just from the base of the eyes. And it does kind of look like they're crying, but uh, you can be reassured wow. that in fact, they're just, just getting rid of that excess salt that's built up in the system. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a, that's amazing. Like I did a fair bit of research for this turtle and I did not come across that. So that is. Yeah. Yeah. And cool an interesting like fact actually that. is that the, uh, the salt glands are bigger than their brain <laughs> because they're that important <laughs> to the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a there's a joke there somewhere. Have to work <laughs> yeah. Maybe the end of the podcast. So you saw them on this island in Africa, but where else are they found? Tell us a little bit about where they're found and what their migration is like. Yeah. So leatherback sea turtles, they are amazing for so many reasons. And one of them being their migrations, which I'll talk about in a second. But to start off, they're the most widespread reptile in the world. They live in the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, and the Mediterranean Sea. They're basically everywhere except for the polar regions in a saltwater environment. But because they're feeding on jellyfish, they feed pelagically, which means that they're out in the open ocean and they're feeding in very deep water. So yeah, they actually utilize a lot more of the ocean environment than the other species of sea turtles that tend to hang a lot in coastal areas, feeding on those more hard-bodied organisms. And as far as the range goes, what's amazing is they're sometimes called polar reptiles. Uh, they're referred to as polar reptiles because they actually go further north and further south than pretty much any other reptile in the world. In the north, they can get as far north as Norway and the Alaska Peninsula. Uh, so very cold, frigid waters, as you can imagine. And in the south, all the way down to New Zealand, and Cape of Good Hope in Africa, and, and then to Southern Chile as well. So it's really interesting because they breed in the tropics, but they, they're feeding grounds because there's usually higher productivity of jellyfish and, and those sort of types of organisms in cooler waters. So they make these massive migrations from their breeding grounds in tropical regions down to, down to these more temperate zones. And it's quite common for them to travel up to 10,000 miles or 16,000 kilometers from their nesting grounds to their feeding grounds, which means that they have one of the largest migrations of any vertebrate in the world. The longest one uh, recorded to date traveled 12,000 kilometers. It went from Indonesia, where it was breeding, all the way down to Oregon, which is actually close to where I'm originally from, which is pretty cool, and back. And they usually make this migration not quite annually. Some will do it annually, but most, most turtles are migrating every two to five years. So they'll travel, they'll breed, and then they'll travel into these cooler regions, and they'll spend two to five years there before they come back to their breeding grounds, depending on how good the food supply is and, and all sorts of other factors that, that scientists don't actually quite understand at this point. Thinking about their migration, I know birds migrate 
yearly and they can kind of ride different wind currents. But are there ocean currents that turtles ride, like in the Finding Nemo? Is that <laughs> the kind of thing that their migration would be aided by? Well, it's interesting. I'm sure that that the currents do aid them in, in some respect, but it's really fascinating to look at their migration paths because they actually follow what they call migration corridors. So if you watch the satellite tracking of a turtle, they move in a very straight line across the ocean. So it's, it's like they know exactly where they're going and they don't know exactly how they're doing it. it. It's similar to birds. It's sort of the mystery. Is it a magnetic pole or, or some other external force that's helping them get there that we, that we don't detect or sense, but they certainly have a knack for navigation as when you look at their tracks, they just go straight in a line to one place. And then they spend a bunch of time in the one area, they might move to a couple other places and then, and then just go straight back to their breeding grounds which is pretty wild and they go back to their their breeding ground is that the same beach yeah they're going back to the same beach or yeah so a lot of the turtles are re- returning to the same beaches it has been recorded that they go to different beaches sometimes like some will end up breeding in different locations than where they originally were born but the large majority return to the same beaches and then when they come back though it's not that they'll always nest on the same beach it's usually on the same island so they'll come back to the initial beach maybe and then they'll move over and they'll try another beach they'll usually lay eggs seven to ten times throughout the nesting season at about 10 day intervals so they'll come up onto the beach lay their eggs they'll go back into the water spend about 10 days resting regaining their energy and then they might try another beach or they might come back up onto the same beach but we had quite a few turtles that we had coming back up on the same beach several times throughout the season while i was while I was there in Equatorial Guinea. Wow, cool. I didn't realize that they kind of like do multiple clutches within the one season. I would have always presumed it was a up on the beach, lay your eggs, and then back to the jellyfish ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's a really good thing that they do. So a lot of other sea turtle species, they'll nest up in sort of in the vegetation. They'll just go straight up the beach, crawl into the vegetation a little bit, maybe a few meters or so, and dig their nest there. So they'll be up in the forest a little bit whereas the leatherbacks are so heavy they can't even get themselves over a log or something like that so they have to nest on these big wide open beaches and oftentimes they'll try several different locations but a lot of those locations that they try will actually get washed out by tides so if they come up at the wrong tide and they're like oh this seems like a great spot and they lay their eggs there then the tide might come and wash that nest away so by laying multiple times, they're increasing their chances significantly of having a successful nest. Yeah. And so the work you're doing on the island, does that involve things like collecting eggs for conservation or because I know that happens with some turtles? No. So where we were, it was too remote. We didn't have the facilities to do anything like that. Our project was sort of a long-term monitoring project to basically see how many turtles were nesting on the beaches. And we also took all sorts of different data. So we would weigh the eggs so we would actually catch the eggs as they were coming out and then we would weigh them to determine the health and whatnot and we would count the number of eggs that were laid in each nest and then we would mark the locations of the nest with a stick and with gps and whatnot so that we could find it later and our data sheets would have you know the date and everything and we know that it's a 60-day incubation period so come time that the nest was due to hatch given it hadn't been flooded or 
anything like that. We would monitor those nests. And if the babies were to hatch during the day, we would collect them, hold on to them so that we could release them later in the evening when they're a little bit safer, which is common practice and is important. You know, the the babies, they have such a low chance of survival and they're fighting so many odds. And so trying to help out, we would actually help dig out the nest as they were coming out. A lot of baby turtles, when you, it's interesting because the ones that we would miss, we would go and we would, after they had hatched out, we would excavate the nest and we would examine all the eggs and, you know, keep track of, okay, this is how many eggs didn't even hatch. This is how many made it to stage one, stage two, some like you would find the embryos and whatnot. And then there would often also be baby turtles that, you know, just didn't quite dig their way all the way out of the nest. So by going and actually finding the nest and digging those extra baby turtles that are having a hard time, we are hopefully benefiting them in some way. And then, yeah. And then we would just release them in the evening back at their nest site. Wow. And then, you know, try to protect them from crabs and other (laughs) predators that were coming in. Yeah. And I mean, are baby turtles as cute as they sound though? That's a weird question, but I have to ask. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're super cute. These guys, babies, baby leatherbacks are, they'll fit in the palm of your hand and they have huge eyes. They're ridiculously cute and they have leatherbacks, especially since they have those soft shells. Sometimes I think just because of the pressure of the nest and stuff, they're a little bit bent and stuff. And they're like, as they're straightening out, they really struggle to walk and they're really clumsy and they fall into holes and flip upside down. And then you know, spend ages, they can flip themselves back up, but it takes a little while. And it's just like every little obstacle is such a challenge. And then they get to the waves and you get so excited for them and it pushes them back up the beach and they're like crawling down again, but they're so determined and they have so much energy. It's unreal. Like it's amazing. I was very impressed that any turtles can survive on these beaches because they're so treacherous, but the that, yeah, they're so tenacious and they just have so much energy and they fight so hard to get to the water. So it's really cool to see. And, and they're, they are unbelievably cute <laughs> as well. Ah, <laughs> oh, cool. And, and so you mentioned like collecting them as, you know, part of the, pro- you know, to release later in the day is an important part of kind of helping them out. But like, tell us why we need to help them out and what the kind of issues facing leatherback turtle populations worldwide are. Yeah, so essentially there's seven distinct populations of leatherback sea turtles around the world, and they're all kind of classified differently according to their status. As the whole species, they're classified by uh, IUCN as uh, vulnerable, yet four of the populations are critically endangered. And then there's another two populations that are data deficient and only one population that's at least concerned, which is the North Atlantic population, which is, I guess, what balances out to being vulnerable. It's kind of hard to understand a little bit, but but yeah, so most populations of leatherback sea turtles are, are critically endangered and they face, you know, they're affected by essentially every problem that that affects the marine environment at this point every widespread major problem from climate change to plastic pollution to overfishing and fisheries unsustainable fisheries bycatch 
They're affected by things like beach ero erosion, by localized rising temperatures because it affects the, the sex of the eggs and whatnot. Yeah, they, they have all sorts of threats facing them from all directions. And then on top of that, just their life history in general, leatherbacks, uh, leatherback sea turtles have the least chance of surviving uh, on an individual basis of any of the sea turtles. They basically struggle a lot. Part of the reason is because, like I was saying before, they don't nest up in the vegetation like the other turtles do. So they're at risk of getting their nest washed out and things like that. So that's one issue. And then, you know, they hatch out and they have an insane amount of predators. They're basically number one on the menu for, for every predator out there on land and in the water. So that's another thing. The babies, they go directly from the beaches out into open ocean. And then they call it the lost years in turtle conservation because they really have no idea what they're doing at, at this point. But these areas where they spend their time are generally in open ocean and outside of marine pr protected areas and stuff, which makes them more vulnerable to fishing. And then leatherbacks on top of that are feeding only on jellyfish. And if you try to think of things that look similar to a jellyfish in the water, it, plastic is a pretty obvious one. So they, they end up consuming a lot of plastic. I've read that that leatherbacks recovered in, in fisheries and nets and, and whatnot have been found with, you know, 11, 12 pounds of plastic or, or 11, 12 kilograms of plastic in their stomachs. So it, it's quite a, quite a big issue in that regard. So essentially... They have all these major threats that are that are impacting them coming from all different angles. And and I think that doing anything to help out a little bit is is really important. And with this, it's like if they were to be hatching at night, which is when they're expected to normally hatch, then we wouldn't actually handle them at all. We would just let them go, and, you know, maybe push a crab or two out of the way to try and increase their chances of getting back. But during the daytime, they're just facing so many threats. You know, the swarms of birds just come in and then it's like, they're all gone really quickly. <laughs> so yeah. that's what, that's kind of why it was important for us to, to collect as many as we could just give them the best chance that they could possibly have of, of surviving and hopefully sustaining these populations that are really important, Yeah, especially on our beaches as well, where they're facing additional threats such as poaching and egg harvesting and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, yeah, I really want to like revisit just what we said a little bit ago when there's different populations. And so, you know, some populations that you're saying are like, there's one that's stable, but the rest are, they're almost gone. And so if you do look at them, you go, oh, they're not that heavily endangered yet, but yeah, there may be none left in the Pacific soon. Like that, that's a scary prospect. It's very sad. And, and the, the numbers are pretty terrifying as well. It's like 90% decrease over the last three generations in the Pacific population. The former biggest breeding grounds in the world in Indonesia, uh, I forget what the exact location is, but went from uh, up until 1956, having around 10,000 nesting leatherbacks or at least nests per year, and now they get about one to two. So yeah, some of these some of these populations are in drastic decline. Most of them actually, and it's just. But there is that one healthy population which keeps the species in balance. But it's good that they've separated it out so that they can say these four populations are critically endangered. Unfortunately, the population that I was working on is data deficient, so they don't actually know with that yeah. one. Well, to bring it back to a bit of a high note, 
you worked on the beaches for quite a long time. Do you have any really cool stories about these turtles or like stories that stick in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, there were so many amazing experiences. So to paint a picture of what the work in general looked like, we would go out at night. So all, all the turtle nesting generally occurs at night, except for the extremely rare morning turtle that everybody wants to see because you can actually take a picture of it. <laughs> but so we go out at night, generally starting at 9 p.m. And we only had four people in our field camp. So we would do usually two people would go out together from nine to one in the morning. And then the next group would go from one to five in the morning because our goal was to to actually find every single turtle that was coming up on the beach. And so we're walking these super remote beaches in Africa in the middle of the night. Oftentimes there's like a storm off in the background, but it's clear skies above you and you've got the full moon and you can walk without your headlamp or anything. And you're basically just walking along the beach looking for tire tracks going up like tractor tire tracks going from the water up the beach. So even when it's pitch black on like an overcast night, we would still walk without headlamps because you were guaranteed if you walked over a leatherback track to step in that in that track, which looks like a tractor tire track, and you would notice that it was there. So you really didn't even need the lights. And they're also really noisy. So you can hear them exhale it like from three, 400 meters away, you'd hear this massive exhale and you'd be like, oh, there's a leatherback up on the beach up this way. And then you just get to, you'd find the leatherback turtle. You'd see it. It's you know, maybe coming up the beach and then it will start digging out its nest and finding the spot that it's going to lay its eggs. And we would either then from there go looking for more turtles because it takes a long time. They, they spend, you know, an hour and a half, two hours on the beach. So if they're depending on where they are in the process, we just need to be there for when the eggs are being laid. So we would walk off, find some more turtles. Or if it was a really slow night, you know, just sit with the turtle and just listen to it, watch it. And it's such an amazing experience just just sitting next to one of these enormous dinosaurs, essentially. And that is actually an interesting fact as well, that they have been around for over 110 million years. So they actually predate the dinosaurs as well. And they look that way too. <laughs> but yeah, so to sit with essentially a dinosaur by yourself with, you know, miles or kilometers of beaches in both directions and just knowing that nobody is there and it's just you and this turtle is such a cool such a cool experience and and I was lucky enough to get to do that pretty much every night through a very successful season you know some nights we would get 20 I think our best night we had like 27 leatherbacks come up on the beach which is just unreal you know you go to other places where there's a lot of turtle tourism and and they get so excited if they get one leatherback or two leatherbacks a season whereas we were getting 15 to 25 per night on these on these beaches which yeah was so cool so the overall experience incredible as far as specific experiences there was one time where I was hiking out to a transect that I was going to be walking, which was actually for a different work that we were doing. And I came across a morning turtle. So a turtle that had just come up onto the beach and this was right at sunrise. And I was by myself at least 10 kilometers from our camp and, you know, 25 kilometers from the village. And yeah, and I saw this massive turtle coming up and it was just starting to dig its nest. And I, I just sat with it for 
for hours or well probably an hour and a half you know as it like dug out its nest laid its eggs and I wasn't working so I just got to sit with it and watch it and see its full colors and then walk with it back to the beach and I waded all the way up to my waist in the water until it was finally able to just swim off and yeah that was just such a cool such a cool moment to just sit through that whole process with it in the daylight, being able to see everything that's happening in a very rare yeah, experience as well. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, I've yeah. heard, heard a few cool stories, but yeah. that has to be that has to be pretty cool. So just before we wrap up, we've covered a lot of cool facts today, but are there any facts that are really cool that we haven't spoken about? I think all my facts have been exhausted because it's been an awesome interview. But have you got any last little tidbits for us? Yeah, I actually have a few really cool things. So one, a lot of it has to do with physiology. So I guess I'll talk about two things. Probably the most interesting one is that leatherback sea turtles are actually somewhere in between an endotherm, which is like a, a mammal or, or a bird or some animal that produces heat on its own. And an ectotherm, which all reptiles are, which use their ambient environment to regulate their body temperature. So unlike any other reptile in the world, these guys actually sort of create their own metabolism where they have a way of controlling their body temperature, which is what allows them to, to live in these subpolar environments where no other reptile in the world can live. Essentially, there's all sorts of things that go into it. But one is that underneath the shell this like unique shell that they have. They have thick layers of fat that insulate the inside, almost like blubber. And what they've actually been deemed as, because they, they don't really know whether to call them endotherms, ectotherms, is what they're calling gigantotherm, which makes them one of the only animals in the world that's deemed a gigantotherm. I think there are endotherms that use the same sort of mechanisms to control their body temperature. But essentially what it means is that they're they're so large that they have such a big volume area and such a small surface area that they actually can preserve their heat really, really efficiently compared to other animals. So that's one cool thing. But what's really cool as well is that they, they use what's called countercurrent heat exchange. And I think it's easiest to explain it in another animal. And I can use seabirds, which which use countercurrent heat exchange as an example. I guess penguins is a great example. But the reason I use a bird is because if with most animals that use countercurrent heat exchange, they're trying to preserve their core temperature, but they of course need to keep their extremities warm enough to function. So what they do is they actually have artery, their arteries pumping warm blood out are very closely aligned with their veins, pumping cold or bringing cold blood back into the body. And what this does is it actually, there's a heat exchange that happens because they run so close to each other and it allows them to basically to not lose heat through their extremities. So that's why penguins feet don't freeze when they're standing on the ice all day. And, and it also helps keep their body really warm. But what's crazy about leatherback sea turtles is they're the only animal in the world that does this same process, but in reverse. So they're so good at preserving their core body temperature just through their insulation and their fat layers that they actually are producing heat through locomotion in their flippers 
and their flippers are actually an elevated temperature well above their core body temperature. And if they were to use the flippers too much, they would actually be overheating their cores without this mechanism of counter current heat exchange that keeps their flippers elevated and their core cool so that they can still use those muscles to function. So in birds and penguins, basically the idea is that all the muscles are kind of located in the core. There's very few muscles in the leg and they basically use those muscles as like pulleys on tendons, kind of like a puppet to move their feet around. And so they actually need all that heat in their core to help those muscles function. Leatherbacks, all their muscles external to their core, basically most of it is. So they're trying to maintain that body heat in the muscle mass by using this counter current heat exchange, which is super interesting. I don't know if I explained that well, but <laughs> or in simple enough terms. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, it's just a heat exchange. And so like, you know, like reptiles are often like lying in the sun to get hot. Whereas turtle, like leatherback turtles are trying to do the opposite almost. And I just yeah. keep thinking of, you know, they're diving and swimming and eating in such cold environments. And I know when scuba diving, there is no way I would ever be warm in some of those places that turtles no. are obviously getting rid of their heat, which is, oh, it just makes me jealous. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's amazing because all other sea turtles are ectothermic. They're using the ambient temperature, which is why they're all confined to tropical regions. But leatherbacks are actually producing their own body heat through locomotion of their flippers, which is allowing them to operate in sub-freezing temperatures, which is amazing, especially for yeah. a reptile. And then the second fact that I wanted to say, just because it's also super interesting, is that these guys, they are among the deepest diving animals in the world. So they're second only to a couple species of whales, the sperm whale and beaked whales and elephant seals, but they can dive down to 4,000 feet or 1,200 meters, which is absolutely insane. And they also have all these physiological uh, adaptions to allow them to do that, including being able to collapse their lungs. And then they have an arterial sphincter that actually cuts off blood supply to, to their lungs and other organs in their body that helps preserve all that energy in the blood. They store extra oxygen in the blood and then, and then they can increase their locomotion at depth where the water is near freezing temperature to control their body temperature while they're down there. So. Wow. It's almost like a superhero animal, all these kind of powers they have to, <laughs> yeah. for a reptile as well. Amazing. Yeah, no, it, it's unreal. The, yeah, the capabilities that they have and, and being a reptile to be able to dive as deep as a sperm whale is pretty <laughs> Pretty insane. Yeah. Very impressive creatures. Oh, so cool. Well, thanks heaps for being on the show. We're just coming to the end. But if anyone wants to find out more about what you do, tell us a little bit about where they can see some of your photos or your expedition travels. Yeah, cool. So I don't have too many social media accounts at the moment. I have one, which is Sam Riley underscore wildlife where you can see some of my photos. And then I've also just created a website called samreillywildlife.com where I'm hoping to keep up sort of a blog and then also have a lot of my photos and my videos on there as well. Well, thanks heaps for being on the show. It's been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. Production assistance by George McGrath and music by the talented Dan Musel. If you've liked the show, jump onto where you're listening to this podcast from and give us a review. It really helps with the show. Also, a big shout out to Simon for his amazing support 
through our website, www.buymeacoffee.com slash matttesto. And this is where we accept one-off donations to support the running costs of the show. Anything and everything is greatly appreciated. Also, check out the show's Instagram, which is Creatures underscore podcast. Coming up in the next episode of the Sea Creatures podcast, we're going to be talking all about the giant Pacific octopus with author David Shield, where we'll learn all kinds of new and amazing octopus facts. This has been the Sea Creatures podcast. Over and out.